on this film. Levitated by the human touch. Antonio's galloping forward, here's the pass. Antonio's through, chance to fall, what a goal! What a brilliant strike by Mikel Antonio! Hello and welcome to another edition of the Knees Up Mother Brown West Ham podcast. I am joined, as always, by my two co-hosts. Swinging low with me this week is Callum Goodall and my sweet chariot is, of course, Jack Elderton. Yeah, rugby happened, and I understand what that is. I do not endorse this message. <laughs> In a period of national mourning. It's your own fault for tweeting about it. I don't, I don't care about rugby, but I do care about being annoying. Um, <laughs> this week, we will be looking back at West Ham and their return to winning ways after a weekend 1-0 win over Wolves. That's a lot of alliteration there. We'll have a look at success on the left, later rivals on the right, uh, the change of system uh before the game and in the game as it was going on, as well as good performances from the likes of Fournals and Zuma. Uh, apology for delay between these two pods. Technical difficulties my end last week uh, made it less than it should have been. We did, however, spend our week wisely, grabbing an interview with guitarist and West Ham fan Dan McCarthy from the band Koala. Hello, welcome to a special edition of the Knees Up Mother Brown West Ham podcast. We've got a bit of a treat today, something different to the usual, and a chance to get to know us a bit more. But far more importantly, we have our special guest ahead of the launch of their debut album, Better With You, which is released Friday the 4th of March. We are thrilled to have Dan McCarthy from Koala joining us today. I did see you got the uh, you got the chance to go up against Laurel on the BBC predictions. What an honour. I, I mean, I must, that's that's where you want your music career to lead you, surely, to be able to, to, be able to knock chords <laughs> with Laurel on the weekend. I tell you, when, when I got that text through, that, that message from our management saying that I got the call up to do Laura Predicts, I was like, well, scrap the album. This is, <laughs> this, is, this, is as far, this is as far as I wanted this shit to take me. Do you know what I mean? You're going to really disappoint me if I don't get a Laura reference one day loudly on some big stage like Glasto or something. I'm doing this for Laura. Do, I am in many ways. If we ever play on the main stage at, at Glastonbury, I'll bring out Mark Lawrence. Gavadon's not got a mention didn't, there. Didn't he have one? He had one leg shorter than the other. Danny, we're getting the band back together. You, me, Loro, main stage of Glasgow. <laughs> oh, it's all my dreams come true. A big win and a really good performance as well, Cal. A kind of performance off the ball about as good on it, but really, I guess. Yeah, yeah, it was good. It was nice. Uh, energetic, I think, was probably my main takeaway compared to previous games where I thought we had definitely looked a bit more tired. Um, and it seemed, yeah, just a resurgence, uh, particularly from some certain players who we're going to go on to talk about. Um, and we spoke on the last pod about how sort of, well, every game now is going to be a must win, but how we sort of needed to respond in these situations. And I was worried that maybe after um, some unfortunate losses and results that we might fall, but they turned around, turned up when we needed it and, and got those three points. And hopefully keep us in the uh, contention for these European places now. So yeah, chuffed. Definitely, definitely I think turning up is, is is a key kind of phrase in that because it was, I think a few of us had worried at least, that the pessimistic and maybe even the more optimistic that uh, there were flagging levels that might cost us in what are very tight games in a, in a quite crazy month or so period of games that we've got going up. Um, 
I guess everyone turned up from from the team and on the bench as well because the manager made changes and made positive impact on the game to kind of change how we played and make us better, Jack. Yeah, well, the the overriding feeling after the Newcastle game was really that something had to give, um, whether it was a, a change in personnel, a change in formation, a, a change in approach, um, a change in what we were doing on the on the training grounds. Something had to had to shift because, um, you know, as Cal described, really that the levels just uh, weren't there. The levels haven't been there really for for the last month. Um, we've looked um, like really 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 like we've been out of energy and out of ideas particularly in possession um it's been quite difficult to watch off and us trying to progress the ball through the thirds and, and really struggling to to play with any kind of invention um so it, it's massively refreshing actually to see a complete change in approach um and, and really pleasing that that Moyes did uh, make good on what he said after the newcastle game which is that he needs to go away now with his staff and look at what they can do differently um and, and perhaps break a few things to, to fix them. Um, and and that's exactly what they did. Completely different approach, completely different system, uh, different style out of possession uh, to the way we've been playing for, for a long, long while um, and all worked brilliantly. I mean, we, we've noticed on occasion this time, this season, that there's been more kind of that front foot defending and the pressing, different players triggering it, Cal and stuff like that. I think you would... It was probably almost the least you expected when you you look at a team that you thought was knackered, that they would be so almost taking risks of pushing that high up to do the defending in the opposition half and deep in the opposition half as well. Yeah, and I think that's, well, obviously it was great to see, but I think it obviously stems from sort of the switch up in formation and, and how... Uh, if you introduce an extra defender at the back, you can kind of you can afford to take those commitments uh, further up the pitch um, because you've got a lot more security in the sense that if an extra player goes forward, there's someone there to cover them. Uh, in this case, it was Cresswell quite often, um, and yeah, it was really nice to see uh, Antonio. I thought pressed brilliantly. We've spoke about him and his um, link up with Four Nows and how they can press together in a little pack, and thought that um, sort of worked really well but uh, not exclusively them I thought the whole team pressed well um, and fair play to the coaching staff because they'd obviously worked on the triggers beforehand and identified when uh, and how to effectively press and and I thought it came off um, and yeah we it, it was nice to see for nows uh, back in there on that pressing as well because I think we said about Ben Rama and how he didn't have that sort of relationship with Antonia and uh, it's always satisfying when something we say uh, pans out in a match <laughs> it's always nice to be proven right I suppose I mean <laughs> It, it, I mean, we we obviously we benefited from the extra rest, and it's worth mentioning. You know, Wolves had played in the week, made some changes, and I know I've seen stats of different teams this year. Some of these teams who have these very disciplined structures that they struggle when they've got those quick turnarounds because they don't quite have the time to work on things. But we did note in the Leicester game how good Lanzini was with Antonio. I believe it was Lanzini, and yeah. he's come back in today, uh, not yesterday, today, yesterday. And him and, and Antonio were really, really good in that kind of area up the pitch, weren't they? Yeah, combined really, really well. Um, but but again, it's really important to to assert how different the approach is. I mean, they combined brilliantly away at Leicester, playing a, in a much more mid, uh, well, in a mid press with mm. with 
more of a screening approach uh, where, where you sit off a little bit more and you wait for the ball to go into, uh, in that game, it was in Didi or Tilamon. Um Here, it would have been Neves or Dandonka. And, and, and that wasn't the approach against Wolves. We looked much more to, to press onto the centre-backs, um, to press the goalkeeper whenever he had the ball. Just a, a much higher and more engaged press all round. And, um, and yeah, they combined again really well here. And actually, it's, it's, it's not a complete diversion uh, from familiarity, these players have executed the, this um, quite well last season uh, at times. And uh, though they're, they're, there's a massive variation on what we did last season with this and something that we've only really used a couple of times this season. I think I can think of Genk away and um, in the Europa League and, and Spurs um, away in the in the League Cup as times where we've used um, this kind of approach. And so there is a level of familiarity for the players tapping into something that they've obviously been coached uh, on before. But to go such a long period without playing it and to seamlessly transition into a completely different uh, style was, was uh, really, really impressive. It worked. It seemed to seemed to help work the balance in the midfield as well. Am I right in thinking that you generally, it seems that it's Rice that goes as one who, if he's not going as far with them, he's the one who will suddenly burst to make something happen. And Suchek seems to sit waiting for those simple balls. Yeah, that's usually what happens. I think that's largely because Rice has got the better perception in terms of reading opportunities for interceptions. Um, and there were a few um, good ones against Wolves where he's charged out of midfield and, and, and got ahead um, of a pass that's, off, that's telegraphed basically and, and able to nip in and, and, and steal it high. But a lot of the turnovers really came from, I think the credit really has to go to Antonio Bowen and Lanzini, particularly in that first half, because they're pressing onto um, Cody, Sice and Kilman, and sometimes Jose Sarr, was constantly forcing long balls out of defence. Um, and, and though they have got Bryce, uh, Suchek, Fornals, Johnson to back that up, if the ball does squirt through that first layer of the press, actually the first layer of the press was really effective in just forcing Wolves along anyway. Um, and that's part of what made Zuma look so brilliant in this game because so many long balls punted up to, to Fabio Silva and um, although Zuma was, was excellent at winning all of those, that's he should be winning all of those duels when he's up against a striker that's a lot smaller than him. In, in terms of strikers who were doing things kind of well or weren't doing things well, I think we've met, you mentioned how good Antonio there was with his pressing and defensively and I know we've been almost relatively defensive of Antonio kind of lately uh, in, in the face of, uh, some could say too often, uh, in the face of kind of criticism that he's faced. But he, he wasn't just a kind of an off-the-ball worker yesterday, Cal. He, he did, I mean, he, was, he produced the assist. He, had a re- he did have a really good game and kind of a return to obvious form, at least. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think he, he performed... Uh, a lot better or it was a lot more obvious but I don't think he was doing that many things differently to what we've kind of pointed out in our defences of him in the sense that he's hitting those channels he's this almost trademark move that he's developed where he just rolls off the shoulder of whatever centre-back he's up against because he knows he'll have him for pace and strength and numerous times in that Wolves game you saw it he'd sort of there was one moment where he was particularly wide and it was almost like a 100-metre sprinter once he was free, just see him absolutely puffing the arms out, just bearing down onto goal. And it happened time and time again, and, and it is great to see, and hopefully this is a, a lengthy return to form for him. And um, his creativity, again, stood out, um, obviously, for the assist for the goal, but there was more than one time where he sort of got into that final third and, and unselfishly looked up to try and pick out a Lanzini. Um, and I can think of a few chances where had luck fallen our way or people timed their runs marginally better, or I guess you could flip that and say Antonio 
put the pass slightly more precisely. Um, but it could have been 2-3-0 if, if we'd have found the back in those situations. But yeah, a, a marked improvement, um, even though I would say that his performances haven't been as bad as uh, people have been making out in recent times. I think the, 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 the one you're talking about, it's, yeah. <laughs> it reminds me in a way, whilst obviously having very few similarities, of it, there's a Gareth Bale goal at Real Madrid where he kind of gallops really elegantly down a wing. And when Antonio does it, he he probably kind of gallops with every sinew moving. And I think it's the one in particular is the one where, if I remember from your rewatch thread, uh, Jack, that's the one where you're screaming shoot. And he has looked up inside to see what he can do. Yeah, I think, first of all, with that, he has done unbelievably well to even get himself in that situation. He's received back to goal, rolled Cody um, and we and we talk about how well he does this. This is probably the best example. Um, lovely body faint, sends Cody the wrong way, spins the other way, um, uses his his speed to get round the outside. And then actually, you know, this is the area where I can get a little bit frustrated with the commentary of Antonio because he 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 can often be derided as someone who lacks technical ability. But his touch to invite Kilman in. And then the, the, then the second touch he takes to nick it round Kilman to take Kilman out of the game to stop him from being able to block any shot is a fantastic attacking play and fantastic close control. Um, and then who knows what happened, really? I think he's keen. I, I put it down to keenness to get it onto his right foot. I think maybe he's got that a little bit of a lack of confidence in front of goal right now. He knows he's able to find teammates, but he's struggling to put the ball in the back of the net himself. Um, but once he's through in that situation, he has to shoot off his left peg, surely. Once he's taken it around Kilman, he's got, he can just swing at it with his left peg and half the goal is open to him. So um, a, a great chance, but he deserves massive credit for creating it all himself, really. Yeah. I just wonder whether maybe actually having an opportunity where he should have shot and he's passed and it's not worked, it's going to be in his head next time. He's full, I'm not, I, I did that pass last time. Yeah. And that, I'm doing it again. I'm just going to have a go. Yeah. And you never know, he might, poke the ball with his right foot, miss the ball with his left foot, swing and fall over. But at least the intent will be right. <laughs> yeah. I think that's it. I think that's why I was so uh, happy to just let him off the hook. That is because I think even in the last game, there was shots where he was just leathering the miles under the bar and we've seen it for, kind of throughout his career. So when he when he does try and put it on a plate, I'm kind of like, oh, you know what? Uh, maybe <laughs> yes, a clinical striker would just bury that, but I'm still not sure I have confidence in him burying it in that situation. Yeah. I suppose I, I think the, the good sign was early on was I can't remember who passed it to him, kind of in the, the right angle, the right corner of the, the Wolves box. And his shot didn't really get much attention on, on the commentary, if I remember correctly. It was actually really well saved by Sark, mm-hmm. heading towards the, his left, the top corner. And it was a it was a kind of a sign of something that maybe, you know, we again, we've discussed, we defend his game before, but he hadn't had that moment where you suddenly thought he was threatening goal. And I think that was probably a, a bit of a boon to him, and actually to everyone around him playing into him, to see him do that. And then on the goal, which won't get you to analyse too much because almost almost what we need is a Wolves analytics person to discuss you know, <laughs> what, what he thinks that Saiz has seen that's caused him to go off for a nice hike <laughs> in the countryside of well, East London. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but I mean, where, and I, but what, what made me really, really happy about that goal was his patience on the ball, just to let the, let the pass roll in front of him, get himself, I mean, un characteristic characteristically individual in the fact that I don't remember really seeing most players jump and do a 180 spin in the air rather than just kind of turn around but you know Antonio <laughs> is Antonio but he then doing that has stopped him doing something rash doing something difficult because he has given himself the, the chance with his composure to look up and see a very simple pass for Suchek to tap in in what was actually a rather quiet go for Suchek as well but it's yeah. it's that kind of return to form that 
this whole team need it needed that as well because there were times in the first half where we had dominance we really did in the first half and we weren't taking advantage of that and we haven't I mean, there were, I guess you can be very, very happy that we didn't this week. We didn't just give away a goal on the brink of half time for no reason, and that was a, in itself was an improvement. <laughs> well, we very nearly did. We very yeah. nearly yeah. Did. <laughs> we quite had that excellent chance with uh, with a couple of seconds to go. I think just briefly to round up on Antonio, I think there's a couple of things I'd like to say. The final few minutes uh, and the mistakes he made there have been massively overcooked anyway, because two of those three mistakes he creates for himself again by by rolling someone and getting himself in behind. Um, so then I, I wouldn't class them as as egregious errors. And uh, the one that is, is is where he loses the ball on halfway and then tries to compensate by making a tackle that he's never going to be able to make and gives away a free kick and gets himself booked. That is really poor. But then oh, I I'm think um, again, this is where we come back to sort of like you know, if we had that backup striker, then there's there's no way that he'd be on the pitch with that mm-hmm. little energy left. Um, and he, he was still really, I mean, hauling himself around the pitch through sprints to try and impact the game, despite having clearly got nothing left in the tank. Um, and then also, um, just to kind of dovetail with what we're saying about how we've defended him recently, I think he benefited massively from playing counterintuitively against the back three because the channels are actually tighter uh, against the back four he's having to spin quite wide to get in between uh, the center back and the fullback but here he's able to pin himself onto Cody uh, draw Cody out by dropping deep and then spin into the space between Cody and the center backs either side of him so the channels are actually much tighter to the center of the box the ones that he wants to hit so he's he's hitting the right areas uh, by being able to do that and I think it massively benefited him to isolate that 1v1 um, where in other games he's he struggled to to, to drag a centre back with him across the pitch, he was able to pull Cody everywhere for the whole ninety minutes, which which benefited him hugely because it, it creates those gaps in the centre of Wolves' defence for him to attack. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it was a kind of a game that seemed to all fall quite well for him in that respect. I mean, if we're talking about other standout performers, it will be no surprise uh, to anyone who listens to this podcast regularly that I would like to bring up a Spaniard and Pablo for now. So I thought dealt with a new system really really well kind of in a formation I don't really remember him playing kind of as deep as that except for Wolves away this season and it was kind of his passing I think that got me Cal it was the kind of forward passing the direct passing and almost being the one who takes the risky pass isn't isn't afraid to try something that might lose him the ball because he's got the technique to trust himself wherever on the pitch he was as well yeah, a hundred percent. We've we've called out his uh, called out. That makes it sound bad. We've highlighted his passing <laughs> in dangerous areas before on this podcast, but uh, particularly his passing to the penalty area. But uh, like you've rightly said, it was sort of his line breaking passes today that uh, well, not today, but this weekend that really stood out to me. Um, completing three, uh, well, they're they're called smart passes on Weisgard, but that is just a line breaking pass basically that um, goes through the defence and cuts through their lines and creates a attacking opportunity. Um, so to complete three of them is, is really quite crazy I think the, the best performer in terms of per 90 this season is uh, Kevin De Bruyne and that was less than than three so that's, that's kind of the performance that we're, we're looking at him putting in um, but yeah there was one that particularly stood out I think it was when he hit Cresswell on the overlap it was kind of like a little dink dink yeah. chip us through um, that created another opportunity and that was really great um, and then after I'd looked at this it kind of um, I thought it important to just look across the whole season to see sort of what 
kettle of fish he's fitting in with in terms of this smart passing um because it's something we've not really spoken about on the podcast before as as a type of pass we've discussed key passing pass to the final third and stuff like that but in particular I thought line breaking passing was quite important to look at because we've talked a lot recently about our inability to pick open defenses and um it's something that I think really stood out um so I found that uh, in the Premier League this season, he has the third best success rate uh, for players uh, committing line-breaking passes with 57%. Um, and he's only beaten by Bernardo Silva, which, I mean, it's Bernardo Silva, so you're quite happy to say you can go first. Uh, and he's on, he's on 61%, so it's only 4% better. And then the one I was more surprised by was Stuart Dallas, uh, who's also on 61%, tied first, um, which I suppose is only surprising because of the season that Leeds have had. Uh, but then I found that Fournals is actually averaging considerably more, uh, in some cases double, uh, attempted smart passes per 90. So when you kind of balance that out, I'm going to say Fournals is probably the best smart passer in the league. Uh, you heard it here first. <laughs> but yeah, it was just nice. Yeah, it was just nice to see. Um, but then on the, you've rightly brought up his passing, but I thought what was most surprising for me in that game was how good he was defensively. Uh, we know he can press, but one thing that we've pointed out before is how uh, almost how much worry he gives me when someone is attempting to dribble past him. We've, we've pointed out earlier in the season, I think he ranked worst in terms of dribbled past per 90. Um, so when I saw him sort of starting in a more defensive role out on that flank, I was like, oh gosh, here we go. He's going to get skinned. Um, and he, he he was insane. He um, yeah had six ball recoveries, which is two more than his average, won 70% of his defensive duels. That's like better than... That, that is insane numbers. That's like the numbers that someone that's played left back their whole career is putting up on a good day. So for him to do that, um, yeah, I was I was really impressed. And then 100% of the loose balls he won as well, which I think is testament to that sort of energy and alertness that we spoke about earlier on from the whole team. Just that sort of when that ball's there, everyone was ready to get on it and win it. And, and he was one of the prime examples of a player that was on form. What, what he did bring as well is something we, we would talk, talk about those line breaking passes at the top, Jack. But what we've struggled with for oh, two, three months, I don't know however long, is, is kind of building up, isn't it? We've we've not been great at building up. We've ended up putting up a, a kind of a, 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 an attacking midfielder by your positional sense, by your formations, into a left wing back slot. And he's probably been our best creative player going forward and also started our attacks at the back as well. I mean, it, I don't know. I don't really know how to describe something like that of a player who who shouldn't be able to do that really in English football, Jack. But he was huge on the day. I think, yeah, lots of impressive things. Cal's rightly um, spoken a lot about his passing, but also his defensive contribution but um, and, and, and his pressing, but also, as you point to, his energy throughout the whole game to get up and down <laughs> that left flank um, so consistently for the whole match to press really high to recover and be making tackles at the back when he needs to uh, to be setting us away from defense and then being the player to then make the final pass in the final third as well um yeah pretty exceptional performance all around and all and, that from a man that's probably not getting much sleep either because he's just got no baby. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. maybe 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 it was i mean i, I you'll have, i'm sure all have seen the videos of Maybe for now, is interrupting Ben Johnson's post-match press conference <laughs> interview and kind of videos of him pre and post-game. Maybe he just needs maybe he needs the lad there with him every week to uh, cheer <laughs> him up. In terms of other other performers, I think my man of the match, even with my Pablo for now bias, is probably Kurt Zuma, who, since the controversy, may be the best 
best centre back in the Premier League now. I don't know. On form, on form, form. Yeah. Uh, over the last few weeks, I think he struggled to find a player who's, who's hitting better levels. The guy's dropping very close to 10 out of 10 every week at the moment. Um, pretty much faultless here. Um, I think there were, there were a couple of mistakes at the start of the second half, but other than that, um, exceptional in the air. I think that role actually in the middle of a back three suits him down to the ground really because he can he can charge out of the defense with the two to cover him on either side to just be so dominant up on that halfway line um yeah just think brilliant in the air brilliant uh recovering uh every time uh silva did manage to get in behind dawson it was mostly um who uh silva did get some joy in behind zim was always there um to cover that uh so great sliding challenges there was one about 30 minutes in where Silva spun in behind and it was an unbelievable recovery tackle on, on Silva in the box when Silva looked almost certain to score. Um, did panic as soon as that happened that he might have done his ACL again because he uh, limped around for the rest of the game. But he seems to have made that a thing now. He seems I, to... I, as, as a man who's, who's torn some ligaments before, I think he's still in that fear of every time it hurts, it must be that injury. It must be that injury. And then they kind of go, oh, no, it just hurts. It's not It's not that I've done it. It's just I'm in pain. It's just every time. Um, There's long stories I could tell you about wasting my time of an awful football career. <laughs> 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 but it, 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 was, it was, I suppose, it's, it's, not, the, it's not the first time I, I think he's played in the kind of back five for us, but it's, it's been rare since he started. He's very, generally been a kind of a two, part of a two, hasn't he, girl? Yeah, I think the last time from memory would probably be. Did we not go to a back five for a bit against that Chelsea, in that Chelsea game where he got that injury? Yes, we did. We, we did. We, we went through a lot of formations, even more than we did. <laughs> <Yeah>. I think, <laughs> and we'll come to that. But yeah, he's he's settled back in, obviously, excellently since he went kicking things. Yeah, he was brilliant. I think that it's just funny to point out, really, that, I mean, Jack's point hit every note that we need to discuss, but um, I noticed that the only duel he lost in the entirety of the game, uh, of which there were 17, was an offensive duel. Everything else he won. Every header he won. Every defensive duel he won. Every loose ball he won. And then to put it uh, to top it all off, he had like ninety percent pass success as well. So <laughs> the perfect That's a really nice line breaking passes as well. Yeah, yes, he did. Really I remember nice. he hit one really firmly as well. I remember thinking, "Oh, that's a that's a confident man's pass." Mm-hmm. Just having that. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Pity to anyone who says a match writer, report writer is going to have to give a player of the month at the end of this month and doesn't want to be the man who goes, "Yeah, it's been a great month for Kurt." <laughs> <laughs> um, You're going to have uh, to. You're going to have yeah, to. Might, might put that responsibility on, on your illustrious editor. Um, other other good performers. I think Lanzini, kind of an obvious standout. But I want yeah. I'll go to Jack because you were kind of adamant that we should kind of discuss Cresswell as well at the start. Yeah, he loves that left centre back role. Um, he's so so good in there uh, it, it, it kind of covers all of his defensive deficiencies allows him to be a really great progressor of the ball allows him to make late runs where he can cross um, free, from free positions actually really uh, haven't I mean what's something I spoke about uh, after the Newcastle game I'm not really sure if it if um, if it went out in the end I, I think I might have cut it from the article that I put out but often what we've seen from from the fullbacks is um, crossing from deep areas um and and something that we haven't seen very much of is either Cresswell or Soufal or Johnson or, or uh, Fredericks does it a little bit but but most of the fullbacks crossing from the byline 
Um, and that's something that we saw in this game is that Cresswell being able to make those late underlapping often runs uh, beyond four hours and then getting away to the byline and being able to cross the ball in. Um, so I thought he was excellent and defensively pretty much faultless. Um, he did a really, really good job. Came out of the fence really aggressively a number of times, which I thought was brilliant um, and kind of stopped Trincao from being able to get much of a foothold um, in the game in the first half. And um, and then recovered really well into the back five, did all of his jobs, uh, did all of his work back there really well. So uh, a, a, a solid performance. Um, and I think he's been, I mean, he's quite good against Newcastle. So I think if he's, if he's getting back to those best levels, then that will really help us a lot. He's not getting uh, exposed, having to do a little bit of lazy marking at the back post. He's generally uh, all right. I'm, I will, <laughs> I'll, I'll kind of skip Lanzini, but I think there were, the only concerns, I guess, were, it wasn't even it's harsh harsh criticism when there's only one player we can give really harsh criticism on top of being a good player it's Declan Rice and I don't he didn't have a bad game by any means and he was he was kind of key in some things and he did that he did the pressing up and then you saw those kind of darting runs forward very unlucky not to score when he smacked the post but it wasn't still kind of not highest levels he could get to Cal. No, I don't think so. I think uh, the I saw quite a few people chucking around uh, the fact that he had 11 interceptions in a game against Wolves, um, which, I mean, yeah, that's a high number, but also we only had like 37% possession. So obviously you're going to have a lot more interceptions if you don't have a lot of the ball because you're constantly chasing it around and winning it back. So I kind of, I think his pressing was good, but it's... Well, from what I've seen, it's kind of been overlorded a bit because I think you have to take the context into account. Um, and then, yeah, I think his, his, like you say, it's harsh to criticise because I don't think he had a bad game per se, but his passing, I think, um, just wasn't that great. I think I've got him down as only completing three uh, passes to the final third, which is not really good enough, in in my opinion, for a team who we've said have sort of struggled in that progression uh, and in transition. But what I will say is that that was kind of offset just to go back to the previous point by the sort of lovely little trifecta of Lanzini, Fornals and Cresswell, whose link up was, was pretty exceptional throughout. And they contributed uh, for 44% of all of our completed forward passes in the game, just the three of them. So, I mean, that, that sort of, whilst Rice didn't have the most amazing game in terms of his forward progression, half of me is thinking maybe he just realised that he didn't really need to. Like, if you've got those three and you're putting all the onus on them to progress it on that left side, then Rice can go about doing his defensive business and a bit of ball carrying and stuff that we've seen him pick up this season because he he knows that he doesn't need to carry that burden as much when those three are in that form. He did he did mention, I think, in the, pre, in the post-match com, press conference style interview with uh, him and Suchek, which was generally just a love in between two very happy midfielders. He mentioned <laughs> being quite happy to let Suchek go on and do some of that attacking work. I mean, it is nitpicking, isn't it, Jack? It's kind of seeing things he could do better rather than seeing something he's done wrong, I suggest. You kind of, in your thread, it's it's seeing options he could have taken forward passes and where he's kind of gone sideways or backwards. I, I disagree with Cal about his interceptions. I, I think um, his pressing was very, very good. Um at the weekend, I think I think uh, some of the best defensive work we've seen from him uh, in a long while. And uh, and when you know Rice is at his best off the ball is when he's making the wrong choice, which he did I think three times from memory in the game where he's got caught ahead of the ball, yeah. and he's still able to make the recovery tackle look ridiculously easy. Mm. Uh, he, he can turn, reach a leg round, win the ball back, and you're like, 
you should have been punished there. You should, mm. uh, you so should have been punished there. And yet you've just made that look stupidly simple uh, to, to recover your error. So I think off the ball, he was brilliant. Um, my, my issues with Rice in this game were more just back yourself. You've got the quality to hit balls that break lines. You, you, by far, I think probably the best striker of a ball in the team. Um, and, and several times, I mean, the, the, the most obvious option that everyone will remember is when Fabianski lays the ball out to him on, on the left flank. Bowen is completely free on the right side of the pitch on about the halfway line. There's no one marking him. He's got a free run all the way towards the goal. Rice sees the pass. He actually stops, looks, sees the pass and doesn't back himself and slides a pass round um, down the line for Antonio. Uh, and Antonio does really well to win a corner after that. But if he just plays that crossfield ball to Bowen, it's a great, great opportunity for a goal. Um, and there are a couple of instances like that in this game where you just think you've got the quality to play those progressive passes. Um, and, and I don't think it's a thing of like, oh, there's other players to carry that burden. He doesn't necessarily need to be the most effective or most crucial progressive passer in the team. But when the opportunity is there, he needs to learn to pick his moments and back himself uh, and try. Um, and, and there were a, a number of uh, times in, in, in the game at the weekend where, where he turned out and played backwards when he had options ahead of him. Um, so that's just that next level that he needs to go to. And we've seen him, we've seen him do it before. Um, it's not that he, he, he isn't a good passer. He is a good passer. We've seen him hit those levels before. He just needs to tap back into that that top level that he can hit that's just kind of tweaks rather than kind of criticism i guess it's what what i know you know if we've got people come for what the listeners come for i'm sure in this is going to be tactical tactical and analytical and that then if i can notice a formation change then anyone listening can notice a formation change i am i i am the layman in this respect um formations is, is, is your gambit jack <laughs> and there were there were plenty in the game weren't there there were there were a lot of changes made in the game. I think for, for all the complaining about the lack of substitutions, which we'll come to, I think Moyes is the kind of manager who will prefer to shift um, the pieces that are out there mm. into different shapes rather than changing who's actually on the pitch. And that's something you saw a, a lot in the game against Wolves, um, particularly in the second half, a lot of, of different shapes used. Um, we started the game with, with a 5-2-2-1, which is not something we've seen. I mean, I said this earlier, not something we've seen since um, that, that Spurs away match in the, in the League Cup. And we saw it in the first half there, uh, which was bonkers, uh, really. We created a lot of chances. Spurs created a lot of chances. And somehow we went into, uh, I think, 2-1 down, right? And the game ended 2-1 Um but, but we could have scored, I think, three or four goals in that first half um, at Spurs. And so something it has been really good for is those high turnovers in the, in the, in the middle third. Um, and when I say middle third, I mean not on the right flank or on the left flank. You're turning the ball over in the middle of the pitch, quite high up the pitch. Um, and, and if you can play one or two passes, you can be straight through on goal. And that's something that we did to great effect against Spurs back then and something that we were able to do to great effect against Wolves. And I think it's something you generally employ when you when you think the opposition centre-backs aren't very good on the ball um, and you can get after them and, and force them to go long or force them to make passes that they're not confident in making and, and turn the ball over in the centre of the pitch and that's something that we did very well in the first half um, use of a box midfield I think you wanted to talk about Chris which is where you kind of set up the the um, the four midfielders um, 
in, in, a, in a rectangular shape um, rather than being flat as a four. Often we would have seen when we play a back five with Moyes, it would be a five, four, one. Um, and that is kind of the most offensive iteration of the system as um, possible. But with the box midfield, you're actually encouraging those balls into the wide areas and then you snap into three V2s um, really aggressively. So you pull um, Bowen, Suchek and, and Johnson across for a three V2 on the right side or Antonio Rice and um, four nows across for a three V2 on the left side, but you're encouraging the balls to begin with rather than sitting in the flat shape, encouraging the opposition to pass the ball around the defense. You actually want them to play progressively because that's where you're going to get the turnovers. Um, Something that was quite difficult against Spurs because we, we wanted them to play progressively and sometimes it worked for us, but actually they had the quality to play through enough. Wolves didn't really have the quality to play through us enough um, on Sunday. And then in the second half, there were lots of lots of different systems we used to begin with. Um, out of possession, we moved to more of a 5-3-2 uh, with Lanzini dropping in alongside Rice and Suchek. That was probably my least favourite period of the game. I think that was far too narrow, the three of them. Um, I, I didn't really think we adjusted very well. I didn't think that either Rice or Suchek took on that central role um, in terms of commanding where the two should be and really owning and dominating that central space. So actually what you ended up was with was three in the central space and no one really able to help out wide. So you ended up with four nows and Johnson really, really exposed in one V ones as, as the wing backs. Um, strangely enough, four nows coped with that and Johnson didn't um, not something you'd really expect. I think partly I would give Cresswell most of the credit on the left side and Dawson had much more problems. A li- little bit of a, the, the benefit of having a left back playing inside you rather than a centre back playing inside you. Cresswell yeah. was more comfy. Cresswell was much happier to come out and assist and, and create um, a, a better sort of 2v2 or 2v1 situation where you can kind of stop the cross. Dawson didn't really fancy that. So, um, so it was much harder on, on the right side. And then after that 5-3-2, very brief switch to a 5-2-1-2 where Lanzini went back in ahead and between um, Bowen and Antonio and, uh, and Rice and Suchek. That looked much better defensively. Um, but again, I just I think we, we looked quite tired. And um, again, the, the wingbacks were far too exposed. I think Bowen wasn't really recovering brilliantly. I think Suchek had a lot of issues in recovery in this period of the game because the two of them, Rice and Suchek, were having to cover a ridiculous ground um, in that period of the match. So, so exposed with balls pushing so high and switching to a back four. So then at last, right at the end of the game, I think with about seven minutes left, we went to a 5-4-1, which I think came far too late because we would have been much more comfortable in controlling the game in the period beforehand. And once we went to a 5-4-1, I know a lot of people were quite nervous and I was very anxious watching it the first time in those last 10 minutes. But really from that point, on, we didn't really concede um, anything. We forced Wolves into long diagonals into the box, which Fabianski claimed completely comfortably over and over again. And, and Wolves' only really opportunities came from shots from distance. So as soon as we went back into that 5-4-1 shape, we were very, very comfortable. It was a reminder, I suppose, at the end, Cal, about where some, the critical thing that we've had with Moyes basically is substitutions. And it's and, and I think I think it was a point mentioned before, the kind of, you know, maybe... Vlasic at sixty, uh, Vlasic at one hundred percent is better than Lanzini at sixty, fifty percent. And it was a game yesterday where I think you'll you'd agree at the end, Jack, um, that it was Antonio Bowen and Lanzini. Cal were just they weren't really able to do the work that they needed to do to be a force, kind of a force at either end, really. Actually, so it meant not only were, were we unable to make the ball stick, but we weren't covering back. And this kind of there does you you'd hope something is being said 
in an ear somewhere that says actually we needed energy boss not in the 90th minute but maybe in the 80th in the 85th latest yeah yeah it is is a consistent source of infuriation just not bringing on those extra legs but the only thing i can think is that um when you think about it in the context of uh when we spoke about uh i don't want to use him because he keeps getting called out as a scapegoat but um where ben rama's not necessarily been able to follow uh tactical instructions um as uh, easily as say a Fornals or a Lanzini and I can only assume that Moyes uh, perhaps is fearful that when you're playing this sort of fluid game where the system is changing so much so fast so frequently it's almost more important to have someone who has the requisite sort of footballing IQ to be able to change at the same pace as the game is changing rather than just bringing on someone just because they're fresh because if you bring them on and they're fresh but they're not following your instructions correctly then that's arguably yeah they can run a bit faster but if if they're running faster out of position or they're running faster to trigger a press at the wrong moment then that's actually going to be more damaging than having someone who's a little bit more tired but is occupying the right places and and stifling uh, opposition attacks more effectively that that would be the only thing that i can think like i too definitely get frustrated when when um particularly in in attacking transitions where it's like we just need that little extra burst of pace or someone to sort of commit to a run that they just don't have their legs for but i would much rather be sort of a little bit less energetic in the attack but but stopping gaping holes from opening up in the 80th minute and conceding these sort of uh, goals that we've seen well particularly in the last minutes of first half uh, where we seem to have lost concentration largely because of fatigue you can imagine it is he's trusting them to do what he wants to do that's the most important thing I suppose and in his mind yeah that positional awareness, even in the last five minutes of knowing your man and knowing where the runners are going to be, I guess he trusts four nows. And I can understand why maybe you don't trust Ben Rama to. Yeah. To and react. it's frustrating in a different sense. And because like, obviously you would just prefer that he just trusted everyone, but, yeah. but that's just not, that's not the position we're I th- in. I think there's two things to talk about. One, you're right to, to, to look at trust. Um, but the second thing I think is the players that would have come on in this situation just weren't there. They weren't fit. So I think Masawaka and Fredericks both would have come on mm. um, to play the wide roles in the 5-4-1, uh, probably about 78, 79 minutes in, just before the 80th minute when Jimenez came on. Um, and, and actually, we just didn't have those options. I wouldn't have wanted to put Ben Rama on in that left-wing slot mm. in the 5 4 one Frankly, um, I was surprised that Vlasic didn't come on earlier uh, for Bowen, who... Uh, Bowen ended up playing the full, full full match, and I actually thought Bowen was was the player out of the three that looked the most knackered. Um, yeah. and so I thought that was a little bit strange. And I, I think really, if you can't trust a player like Kral to do a job in terms of very simple job of shielding from left midfield or right midfield um, for ten minutes then how has he ended up at the club? I don't really mm. understand recruitment-wise how he's ended up at the club if you can't trust him to do something that simple. No, it is, it is, it is a little bit of a... It's more damning, I guess, on the players that are left behind rather than anything else. Um, I know what you mentioned when you were talking about the formation, you were talking about kind of clusters of players and it was it tied into something, Cal, you mentioned before we came on in our little, our little meetings, production meeting we have, about mm-hmm. kind of... You know, we've we've talked about that balance to the left and the priority on the left. But actually, we've talked about it almost as a negative. As actually, it has positives on almost what the right aren't having to do, which enables them to do something else. I suppose. 
Yeah, yeah, you summed it up perfectly there, really. Um, summed it up without actually saying what it means. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, some might call me fickle because I'm yeah. going to come to the defence of the of the left side emphasis that I slagged off the week before, uh, but, but it worked well. Um, but yeah, it was another game where the emphasis was massively on this left side. So I think 76% of our positional attacks came from the left. Um, so a positional attack is basically just any open play attack that isn't a counter attack. Um, I don't know why they don't just say something slightly more obvious than positional I found it confusing when I first came across the term um, and then of those uh, you can use a different term you don't have to use that term, <laughs> you, know. you, you yeah, sound like true. a man who was criticising it but couldn't work out what he wanted to call it himself so it was just why don't I say anything else <laughs> yeah, yeah. just call people out yeah um but yeah so of those 76 percent of positional oh, i've done it again you know what i mean those attacks that come from the left side we created uh 49 of our total xg uh so you can see that the, the the threat really does come from this side and uh previously we've we've talked about uh reasons for this uh being that the majority of our most creative players uh, or the players we trust in attack uh, to bring the ball up. So Rice, Cresswell, uh, Fournals, Banama, they're all on that left side. So yeah, it kind of makes sense that yes, we're going to try and channel it all down the left flank. Um, but something we've not talked about is, as, as you already mentioned, Chris, what it means for the right-hand side of the attack. Because I kind of looked at the numbers initially and thought, okay, well, why have we created zero XG from attacks on the right flank? That's just, that's such a heavy imbalance that I really want to see fixed. But when you kind of drag the emphasis over to the left, it's not just the left side that are engaged. It also brings the whole right side of the attack across with them. And I think the perfect example is obviously how we've seen Suchek score in this game. Admittedly, yes, it was because of a rather uh, damning error on Saiz's part. Um, but the sort of, by shifting everything over to the left, it gives the likes of Suchek um, the freedom to come into the box and occupy these dangerous spaces. Um, and also, I think uh, Lanzini in this game, there was one moment where I think he was uh, really unfortunate not to score. I think it was um, quite a, a chance where they'd cut it back and he kind of just missed the goal and then he was head in hands on the floor. Um, but it kind of, I, I guess in, in the simplest terms, it kind of just confuses the defence because everyone's responsibilities kind of shift quickly because all these players kind of shuffle along one and then there's all sorts of chaos that you can create. Um, so yeah, I just thought it, it seemed a sensible thing to bring up uh, because we've, understandably criticised this left emphasis when it hasn't worked um, but it did work this weekend and I thought we should look at the other side of it. What you were saying is before is that you, of the players that you want arriving the players that you want to be doing those late rivals are the right side players aren't you? You yeah. don't want Rice being your kind of I don't know the modern day 90s Paul Scholes you kind of want Suchek ghosting in he's not he's not yeah. the creator is he? he's not going to do your guile well, I think that's kind of what it stemmed from is that we've we've talked about the imbalance. And yes, it is an imbalance in terms of percentages because such a high percentage of our attacks come down the left and such a low percentage come down the right. But uh, almost bizarrely, it's kind of a, a perfectly balanced starting 11 in the yeah. sense that you've got all your best creators out on the left and you've got Bowen, who's arguably our, well, is our most prolific uh, scorer at the minute and Suchek, our biggest aerial threat and not only aerial, but in terms of late arrival, the guy has just kind of a knack of picking up these positions, not even inside the box, but also outside the box. And um, we've seen him score goals, but doing that before, I think against Watford uh, and maybe Villa both come to mind off the top of my head. Um, so it's kind he, of, he had, he had one built in the game. this squad. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so that 
it it just seemed funny in my head that we talk about an imbalance when also you could flip it around and go, well, actually, it is balanced in the sense that it's split perfectly down the middle. It's, it's all about making space for the people. So Bowen is obviously finding all that space that you wouldn't be finding if, I suppose, if it was all crushed yeah. down on the right side of the pitch. You'd then be asking for now. So he doesn't quite have the same knack for goal scoring, I guess, as well, either. Not not that Bowen took a, took the big chance he had created. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I think... It's a good point generally about definitely the attack, but I think in terms of moving forward with this system, you would have to have uh, a definitely a, a wing back on the right side who's comfortable crossing, um, which we didn't yeah. have in this game. Yeah, I think Johnson, Johnson for his brilliant defensive work. I, I'm not sure what his cross completion was in this game, but it, from 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 a first and second like, watch with, without 0.5 percent, it was one yeah. of eight. One of yeah, eight is, is a really really poor retirement, especially did... for someone who who I feel that as you're <laughs> describing. Crosses are dropping out to him on the right side, where he's actually got time to line something yeah. up. So he he really should be doing a lot better from the from the positions he's getting into. Um, but then also with Craig Dawson on the right side, as you're saying about, we're talking about Cresswell timing those those underlapping or overlapping runs really well from left centre half. You've just got none of that threat from your defence on the right side if you play that back five. And um, I think you're right to, to pull out that actually the attackers you've got arriving from the right uh, are the people you want arriving from, from the right and perhaps not the people you want whipping the ball in or whatever. But when the ball drops out on the right side, you need to have a wing back who's competent at, at getting the ball into the box. And, and you also probably need to have for at least some balance and build up a right-sided centre-back who's confident, confident in carrying the ball out and, and playing, playing a pass that breaks the lines, at least from time to time. Um, so, yeah, and that's perhaps the biggest issue with a lot of people will say, can we move forward with this system or not? You know, can we play this next week and, and going forward? I think that's probably the biggest issue is where's, where's that kind of ability coming from in the defence on the right-hand side? Definitely. And I suppose, granted, we are... We are working a slightly of a makeshift defence. So first choice, I guess, Ogbonna would have been in the centre of that three and Zuma might have been right side. The other, the, other, the other point, and it's a really difficult one, I know we struggle in a way assessing goalkeepers and I've been reading some stuff about assessing goalkeepers this week and you can see even people who are good at it find it really difficult. Um, there was a difference, there's quite two different, quite different goalkeepers and I thought Fabianski, when he did the stuff that we we think Ariola is maybe more inclined to do, the kind of catching and stuff, can he was really dominant and it was really important the times he did it. But he does have that kind of conservative approach. Yeah, I think uh, I don't want to call it a trend, but it's something I've noticed a few more times now is that uh, the volume of these sort of uh, progressives, perhaps not the right word, but more sort of. Um, sweeper sort of uh, activities that where he commits to coming off his line, something that's generally considered uncharacteristic of Fabianski, the volume isn't necessarily going up dramatically, but the decision-making of when to do it has improved from at least what I can, from what I can see. Um, I, I know on multiple episodes of the podcast this season, I've, I've said how like in the 80th minute he's come out and claimed the high cross and it's almost at risk of sounding like a broken record, but it, that is what we've sort of said we need to see and has often been my um, uh, rationale for saying uh, at various intervals that Ariola needs to come into the team because we need a more assertive keeper. We need someone who's more proactive. And um, yeah, I think, like you said, in, in this game, there was moments where we just need that sort of bit of assurance. And it just when you do do it as well, it's, it gives the whole team like a few moments breath like he he claims that ball and then he just sort of you see him like put the hands he's like looking at the place like can't like everyone chill chill we've got the ball getting new positions get the shape 
it's what you need. It is what you need. And it's, it's different because Saar, I mean, you mentioned again of the Red Jack, the kind of difference in a proactive goalkeeper. Saar was, was more proactive. I think Fabianski is excellent at coming in, claiming crosses in those situations. High balls, I think he's very, mm. very good at dealing with, particularly diagonals. I think he struggled to find. I think it was Bruno Large said afterwards, I think he, he called him the best keeper in the world at claiming high diagonals. And I think that, that's pretty spot on. He's very he's, specific price. Uh, <laughs> but I, where we where we talk about Fabianski struggling is more from those kind of whipped crosses that might come from the byline and, and being able to, to to come out then and maybe punch the ball. We don't really see that from Fabianski. But when the ball is punted in from deep, he is very very good at uh, claiming above everyone uh, and, and relieving that pressure on the defence. Good again uh, at the weekend against Wolves, very marked in the last 10 minutes. And actually something that I was impressed with in the game was his um, timing of uh, releasing us in the second half onto counter-attacks. Really nice uh, balls out, a um, couple of really nice ones out to Bowen and some really nice um, passes where he's throwing the ball out to, to Rice to be able to trigger a counter-attack. But um, the big um, difference between Fabianski and Saar, and when you're talking about playing a back three or a back five and committing to some more aggressive duels from your centre-backs, something that Wolves massively benefit from is when they are beaten in behind, when Antonio is able to roll in behind or Bowen is able to make a run and be picked out, Saar is always able to read mm. these situations. He is brilliant at coming off of his line reading when 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 the danger is uh there and, and being in a good position to be able to charge out and um i think probably uh, three times i can remember in the game perhaps even four where he's come out and, and disrupted either with a tackle or by patting the ball um away with a with with his palm of his hand and that that's really very useful for for wolves in terms of allowing them to commit to those more aggressive duels and that i think is something that we miss a little bit with fabianski uh, he's he's the most passive uh, keeper in the Premier League, um, mm-hmm. the least likely to come off his line. It's the least uh, least number of involvement or lowest number of involvements in in any kind of duel outside of his box um, or really off his goal line. Um, so so when those balls do come in behind, and uh, it was perfectly exemplified at the start of the first half where there was a ball in behind Cresswell, I think it was. Um, Hover, who pushed the ball um, and tried to run round Cresswell. And Fabianski was so slow to arrive that Zuma actually came all the way across and put the ball out for a corner. Um, and this is where you perhaps, if you're going to play that system and commit to those slightly more aggressive duels from your, from your centre-backs um, on, on either side, then you do need your keeper to be able to back that up if they get beaten in behind. And, and that's definitely not something we get from Fabianski. What, what, what we do get on the flip of that is he doesn't come out and make those errors that can cost goals like Ariola has done. You can see the risk in maybe being slightly more proactive sometimes as you, and I guess that's why he doesn't do it because he wants that security of his goal. He knows his goal. He knows where he is. And maybe that's a little bit, he's, he, 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 he strikes me at times as a bit of a throwback goalkeeper in some respects that he does those. It feels like he does come out and claim those high balls late on, almost in that way you used to get where it felt like, oh, this is a big, a big, like almost look around to the defenders in terms to calm down and that is something mm. he kind of has to he makes the decision he needs to be doing those things when it's important yeah I think there was a moment as well I think if I'm remembering correctly where Saar that was almost an example of uh, the risk that's involved when you do come off the line I think Bowen sort of nicked possession off him and Saar was caught pretty far out uh, in his penalty box they mm. didn't get punished for it in the end but it was just sort of that there is flip sides to it but I do agree with Jack it's like if this is a system that Moyes is looking at again 
Um, I mean, we're going to have to replace Fabianski anyway because we've said uh, as good as he has been, there has been moments. I think the most obvious example for me is that Jack Harrison goal against Leeds where he just, uh, a faster keeper that's more like would have been off that line and slide tackled and, and kicked out for a throw or whatever. Um, and that sadly does kind of just come with age and he's, he's not just suddenly going to get a burst of pace at 37 or whatever age he is. Um, but yeah, whether Ariola is the, the remedy to that, I don't know. And, and whether we, we're going to go on to sign him. I think I'm slowly becoming more uh, towards the side that I, I don't know if Moyes is actually that interested in buying him. Um, but but we'll see. That's a, a summer thing. I know that yeah, the wages are a big issue uh, yeah. with Ariola, but I do like the blend. I think if we can move forward having uh, a number one who you're really confident, um, or, or two different keepers, basically one who you're really confident at, at with 1v1s. Fabianski is an excellent 1v1 keeper, yeah. brilliant on his line. And then another keeper who you can turn to uh, as a more proactive option, someone who can who can come out and uh, and make more impact off, off of his line as more of a sweeper keeper. I think having the two options is, is really beneficial. Yeah, 100%. We can leave leave the wall turns there, but before, before we go, we should discuss very quickly the... Uh, with the Europa draw, which saw us with, is it six-time, five-time Europa League winners or Europa Cup winners mixed in there somewhere? I can't remember now. Uh, Sevilla, who in my head always with the, the Europa League, that is, it's kind of, mm. you know, the all the Champions Cup. League teams get knocked out and Sevilla eventually just go pick it up because they might as well. Um, I know you're more optimistic than me in, in these parts, in everything and all aspects of life, maybe. Um, <laughs> what, are you, what are your thoughts, Jack, on, on the Sevilla tie quickly? Uh, very excited. Um, I think it's a good draw. I think there, there are a few dud draws in there where you would have drawn a team that would have been very hard to get past but wouldn't have been um, such a, a great away day or, or whatever. So I think it's, it's great for the fans who are going to go. Um, I, I, they've been very good this season. It's going to be uh, challenging to beat them, obviously. Um, if there's any kind of shred of hope is that over the last month, save last the last game where they beat Betis and played played well. I think they've they've dropped off a little bit in terms of their form over the the last month. There's uh, less goals. I think if you look at their results recently, there's more sort of one ones, one nils kind of thing. Um, so um, perhaps there's a little bit of hope there in saying maybe we can go away to Sevilla and, and try and nab a, a nil nil um, and then bring them back um, to to a game at, at London Stadium where we'd have the advantage basically. Um, so yeah. A little bit positive, but but tough draw. Yes, if you're looking for positives, they they barely squeaked through Zagreb, and they only won one game in the Champions League this year. So they're not they haven't found Europe too too easy this season. I guess the other positive is we've had some really good good games against big teams, and maybe you know having shown against Wolves, maybe having the, the kind of desire to sit back a bit more might suit us. Cal, we might actually be able to go sneak things. Yeah, I think that's it. And I think as well, there's there's something to be said for, I mean, there's no greater statement of intent is there than turning up here and, and beating literally the the Europa League team, really. Um, it'd be great. I think Jack's rightly pointed out that I would almost rather have a trickier fixture like Severe than against some of these sort of, like, as he as he said, dud, dud draws where it's, you'd be a little bit... Um, more hesitant and I, I'm really looking forward to it I'm, I've got my ticket I'm, I'm excited to go down I think the atmosphere should be popping obviously we've got the second leg which is always a bonus um, and yeah the, their form has dropped a bit they have still got the best defence in La Liga which which was the first thing that I kind of thought of they've I think only conceded 18 goals in 25 games now I think which is pretty remarkable uh, in the league that is um, and obviously 
my first thought was this is we are a team that have sort of struggled throughout the season to to break down solid defenses um but then going into the wolves game that was my thought as well and we did it yeah. so wolves had one of the best defenses in the league and we managed to get past that so i think um really yeah just just looking forward to it and and i think you rightly said chris they didn't they did get beat by Zagreb in the second leg. I'm, I didn't watch the game. I'm sure they probably fielded a weakish team, but they are beatable. I saw a lot of, oh, this is it. Europa League campaign's over. We've got Sevilla. They're going to win it. And it's like, come on, man. Like, we've beat Liverpool. We've beat Chelsea. Both of those teams are better than Sevilla. So, like, we, we can. United in the Cup. Exactly. So, we if, can do um, it. My viewpoint generally is, you know, I, you know, you kind of half want the easy team. It would have been great um, after today's news to get Spartak Moscow and get a bye. But you go into <laughs> Europa, you go into Europa to play good teams and have kind of a laugh with it, basically, and enjoy it. And you're going to enjoy, you know, our away fans will make Sevilla their own. We'll have a lovely time in Sevilla, uh, and we get a big game at the very least, one really big game in the Europa to have a crack at. So, and they're missing a few players. Yeah. They're missing it. They feel Delaney will be suspended. There's a couple of injuries there. They, they, I know they played a makeshift back uh, back four last week with Fernando dropping into the back four. So I guess they're still in the title race as well. And the title race in Spain, it, I mean, that's huge to them. Winning that league would be so much bigger than winning the Europa League. So I guess that's that part. You know, you never know. You might catch them distracted. Um, we've yep. got Southampton coming up. Quick predictions. Oh. Cup game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> Go on, Jay. You can go first, bro. <laughs> um, look, I really hope that we rotate uh, heavily for this one. I, I, it's a shame to have to say that. It'd be great if we could go deep into the FA Cup, but there's no way the squad can compete across Premier League top six battle, Europa League and FA Cup. Um, I think that's incredibly unlikely that we'd be able to maintain levels across all three tournaments. So um, I would rotate. And if the rotated team can get through, then they deserve to play the next one and we'll see how far they can get. But um, I wouldn't back a fully rotated 11 to, to beat Southampton. Well, I I'll, I will go in and say that I would still prioritise the FA Cup over everything if I could do it on um, <laughs> on kind of on just because I, I love the FA Cup. I think so I would prefer to win the FA Cup than any trophy in the world, but that's an emotional attachment. But my more concern is that Southampton are absolutely on it at the moment. They're full of energy. They seem to be have found a way to make us uncomfortable when they play. Mm. And that's the game we've got. I don't know about you, Cal. Yeah, no, I'm pretty much in the same camp as you guys. I agree with Jack that uh, of the three, this is probably the one that I would put on the back burner and, and give give a few players some important, much needed rest. Uh, and also, you're right to point out, Chris, that Hassan has kind of developed a knack of how to seemingly get under our skin and get in behind us. So, yeah, I've, I'm not feeling too confident. Also, I think I'd, this is all Southampton have got to play for, right, really? They're not in the Europa um, running they're not going to get continental qualification they're not in a relegation battle so they're going to be bang up for it um, so yeah I don't know we'll see <laughs> hopefully we come back next week and yeah. we've got through but you never know but how miserable is that all three I know yeah. yeah look it's nice to have you at my level for once um, <laughs> sorry everyone <laughs> hopefully hopefully we come back happier next week and we've got a win um, but until then I'd have to say on that note good night uh, farewell Right, so we're here in the offices of a late late show with the host of a late late show, James Corden. Hi. Big West Ham fan. Yes. <laughs> and big knees up Mother Brown man. Yeah. Yeah, I'm regularly on the general discussion page. There's always someone's got some information, so I love it, yeah. yeah. It's great. Yes, it's Find excitement it. surrounded by imminent disappointment. <laughs> that's what it that's what it mostly is. Get on the forum. 
at KUMB.com. Come on, you irons.